Welcome everyone to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview practitioners and people with ancestral ties to the land. I am Melissa Kimera, and I am a conservationist and an artist living here in Hawaii. And I'm Clay Chowernicht. I work at University of Hawaii Manoa. I do uh, extension stuff, kind of outreach and research um, tied to ecosystem conservation restoration uh, and fire. And I'm not a conservationist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am. I'm like the reluctant conservationist. No, I, I, I am. I, I think, yeah, we're going to explore a lot of these ideas of what the heck is conservation over the course of this um, podcast. I think that's one of the reasons we're like talking to these folks, like what, what does it mean and what are we trying to do? And I think today, this interview in particular, it, it's quite different, right? It's, it's pretty different from the, some of the other ones that we've done. That's right. We have been thus far interviewing our elder conservationists, really botanists, biologists, and we're switching gears a little bit, well, actually a, a lot, really to look at the Kanaka Maoli perspective, meaning the Hawaiian, Native Hawaiian perspective on relation to land, relation to the environment. And we are going to be interviewing Nan Kuule Akao Kabapat, who is a Native Hawaiian practitioner. She's an artist. And really, I got to know Nan from working up at Haleakala National Park years ago. And you know Nan, or you hear about Nan when you work up there, because you know that she is chanting Oli, meaning sacred chant, up there at the summit of Haleakala at like eight, 9,000 feet. I mean, just envision that for a moment. Yeah. And uh, interesting in the context of like welcoming mostly kind of, you know, outsiders. And then that by that, mm -hmm. I mean like people that don't really know much are visiting this place and probably, you know, are having a hard time like finding opportunities to connect to a place like that. And so she's just sort of there kind of opening her heart to, yeah. to everybody really. Yeah. Yeah, in complete sincerity. I mean, the thing about Nan that you realize right from the get-go is that when you are with her, she is with you 100%. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if she just met you five minutes ago or you've known her for 25 years. She's just with you. And I think you're going to get that when you listen to her talk. She's also had so many different jobs, too. Um, we will hear about how she was married to District Ranger. And then, you know, she would actually get on the radio herself too, right, Clay? <laughs> I think really, well, from my perspective, it's kind of the early days of firefighting here mm -hmm. in Hawaii in the 70s and whatnot. But um, I mean, I think more interesting than all of that even is just this fact like that, you know, kind of starting from some of the folks that we've talked to already where it's the focus is on native ecosystems and, and kind of that sort of conventional conservation outlook. And, you know, just hearing the stories of Nan, Nan growing up, you're like, she is just connecting to this place through everything that's around her, you know, including mm -hmm. a lot of the like non-native things that, mm -hmm. and that's like what my kids get to see in the backyard yeah. and, you yeah. know, the, exactly. in the neighborhood. And so, you know, you have this sort of sense that, oh, you know, there's only certain things that we should value. And you kind of think about in that strict sense of, you know, native species, native ecosystems. And that's not at all really that what, that what connects us to this place. So it's much more than that. It's so much broader than that. The thing that I really take away and we'll get to just letting you listen to Nan in 
just a few seconds, but the one thing I'll say is that she connects with the land through connecting with people and for, through caring for people fundamentally, which is such an incredible perspective yeah. to take. Yeah. And one I think that we often miss and it's phenomenal, particularly the preparation of food. For those of you who haven't eaten yet, you're going to be hearing <laughs> these descriptions of food. You're going to be like, oh, my God, I'm starving now. <laughs> you don't yeah. want to go make them because yeah. she really is about preparing food, sharing her culture, sharing the language, connecting with everything on the land and the people. And, and she is that bridge, really, to that frame of mind. So with that... Let me introduce our next interview with Nan or Nanette Kule Akau Kabepa. So Nan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh gosh, I've really wanted to talk to you for a very, very long time. You and I used to work together. Yes, we did. Yeah, but I have to say that I, you know, I didn't get to see you in action, but I've heard so many incredible stories. So, gosh, um, I want to turn it over to Clay because he always starts off our interviews with asking, you know, some background info, if you would, Clay. Yeah, sure. I, I just was, uh, you know, we start all of these just by asking um, our interviewee, which is you today, uh, just a bit about where you come from and kind of experiences and how you really connected to uh to to this place where you where you are where where you live growing up well um my father is from hilo my mother is on the big island and my mother is from kuao down by paia on maui they met in san francisco and they actually had two girls i'm the oldest and then my sister so we lived in richmond California for five, six years and moved back here to Maui because Maui was where both of my grandmothers were at that point in time. And when, when was, yeah, when was this about, where were we talking? This was 1956. Okay. Wow. Maui was a little different back then. This <laughs> <laughs> were still a territory. Right. Oh my gosh! Can you tell right. us about that? That you remember? I I don't remember very much politically. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember there were certain things that we did with regularity that were, um, when I look back at it, country style. Yeah. I mean, they sold crack seed in a brown paper sack, not a plastic one. Uh, we ate the crack seed. And then turn the package inside out and sucked on the pack. You got to make sure you got all of those. <laughs> and the funny part about it, it was only five cents. Right. God. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Unreal. Haircut for uh, during the war, it was 10 cents. And then it went up um, after World War II. Um, it, the price went up and it... Eventually, in the 50s, was a dollar. And I was like, oh, yeah. Inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the amount of money we got for whatever it was that we did, we held on to it. Mm. And I find myself, um, for the amount of money that you you hold on to it, Mm -hmm. because you never know. Yeah. 
But we had fun back then. Well, I want to hear it. Tell, tell us. You could actually go back to the taro patches and drink water out of the taro patches. Wow. Now you don't dare do that. Yeah. Like what area then, Nan, would have this would this have been in Maui? The house that I am sitting in right now mm. is the house I grew up in. Wow. Up in Kula. They had Kula Lodge back then. Um, it had opened up. And just below Kula Lodge, there was James Track. And I have always lived there for as long as I know. So you're in your family house then, Nan. Literally. But you still then, it would have been primarily, you had all the big ranches at that point already pretty well established. And I mean... Haleakala Ranch, they had uh, the beef ranch, then uh, one was doing the dairy. So we had that. And then somebody, some cousin had A and B, Maui Pine. Those were, those were what I grew up with. They don't mm-hmm. exist today. And the national park wasn't there by then, right? Uh, Haleakala became its own national park, but it was a, a district of Hawaii National Park. Okay. And that was in August 1st. 1916. Okay, mm-hmm. so that goes back. It was its own uh, distinct from Hawaii Volcanoes. I, I get it. Yeah, they became, the two districts became their own national park after we became a state, which makes right. it very interesting. Haleakala and Hawaii Volcanoes National Parks were national park, um, the, in the national park before there was a national park service wow right because that's you take the month of august august 1st 1916 we are one of two districts of hawaii national park okay august on the 25th the national park service is formed and then 1959 august 21st we become the 50th state. Right. And soon mm-hmm. after, uh, the two districts become their own national park. So August and Hawaii, very, uh, very meaningful thing. A lot of things happened in the month of August, mm-hmm. different years. Mm-hmm. So, Nan, did you grow up going up to Haleakala with your family. Can you tell us a little bit about one of your most cherished places or significant places and why it's so important to you? We always went to Hosmer's Grove because at Hosmer's Grove, you could see birds. Um, Daddy would tell us stories about ohello berries because you had ohello berries at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. So there were some plants that you had at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park that we had here on Maui at Haleakala. Mm-hmm. So for him, there was this relationship because of the plants and the birds. And we would go up there and we would have lunch and walk the trail. Didn't know very much about Ralph Hosmer then, but, you know, we would walk around. And in those days... Didn't have the fence line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the fun part was they had these humongously big pine trees. And come winter, we would have big winds. And the idea was, oh, we need to go up to the park. We need to go to Hosmer's Grove. And we would come home with these pine cones that were 
um, maybe 12, 14 inches long. And that's how I got introduced to coniferous trees. Wow. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> and we always took them out at Christmas. There were four of us girls, so we had four pine cones. <laughs> and we would put them um, and decorate them. That's great. We had uh, pine trees in our yard, but not that gave us these humongous cones. And it was fun because it was like, <gasps> you know, when you're little and you see something that's bigger yeah. than you, um, it, it's like, especially when you're on a Pacific island in the tropics. Daddy planted um, four sugar pine trees. And as a girl, each year they grew and each year I climbed. And because mm-hmm. they grew taller, I climbed higher. Every time the needles broke off, there was this gummy sap. And it was fun because you didn't have Elmer's glue. <laughs> but you had, well, you know, you make do yeah. with what you have. Yeah, arts and crafts from the backyard. I love it. You had this gummy um, sap and you could put it on. And because in those days we had a glue, it came in a bottle, but whoo, it had a smell to it. Then I found out some of the glue that we used was from horses' hooves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't understand that, but you know, whatever. But it was like I could go up and get pine sap, use that as a glue. And whatever you put together, it had this pine sap smell, which I figured was better than the other kind of smell. Well, Nan, I got to just interject because um, I use a pine resin. They have a very fancy name for it in the studio for mixing oil paint. And I and it's like you open the bottle. It's called Venetian turpentine. You open the bottle and it smells like pine trees. And I am addicted to that smell. It's, it's very appropriate for the for the season we're in right now. Yeah, too. exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my kids are like obsessing over Christmas trees. They're just like, when are we going? When are we going? When are we going? <laughs> like, I'm going to make you guys go up and harvest the Cook Island pine. It's not going to smell at all. <laughs> well, I have a Norfolk Island tree and a Cook Island pine. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get a hoop because there are four different kinds of, oh, I don't know how to say it correctly, Araucaria. Yeah. Norfolk, Cook, Hoop, and Bunya Bunya. And some of them, the way they grow is very interesting. Oh, very much so. But they don't have smell. I and find this time of year, what? Oh, no, I was just going to say, and then I find it so fascinating that you have such a long, deep history of Hawaiian plants and Hawaiian, you know, everything, culture, which we'll talk a little bit about. And then there's all of this, you know, the other things that are new, newer to Hawaii that you have deep relationship with. I love, I love that. That's so interesting to me. It's like, oh, yeah. uh, you go into the plants and not that I want to blame, but my father's only sister was a botanist. Every oh. we went to stay with her on the Big Island. Every time she saw certain plants, you had to learn about certain plants. And that's when I first learned pilo and coffee are in the same family. And if you got an upset stomach, if you ate pilo, um, that would cause you to throw up. And it's like Okay, so guess what pilo means to throw up? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so there's some plants 
they get their name, their genus or their species name, because of what they do to you. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in Latin or Greek. You find it in Chinese. You mm-hmm. find it obviously Hawaiian. You know, just a different way of you know when you have when you understand the uses of all these plants, like they have such a it's so obvious, right? Well, when you just kind of learn it for what it is, and I think a lot of folks are are disconnected from that because they don't, you know, they learn for a plant for that it's part of an ecosystem, for example, but. Uh, you know, when it's sort of part of your material culture, right? Like how, how you kind of get by on a, on the day-to-day. Yep. So you sit and you go, ooh, so people have names for things and you have obviously a different name because it's a different culture, but it means the same. Yeah. Well, yeah, too. I, I just, I kind of love those stories because I think about this more so, I think, with me having little, little kids, uh, my daughters who they what, what are the plants and the animals that they see every day and it's totally like they just talk about how cute mongoose are you know <laughs> you know like you work in with like trying to protect these ecosystems and you you know you're kind of told what is good and what is bad pretty you know like as if it's this objective thing and then you realize like man any way that people connect uh, to these things is, has value, you know, yeah. so with you and your pine trees, for sure. <laughs> yeah, kinda, for sure. It's kind of beautiful. Um, Nan, I want to hear about, about you know, someone in your life. I, I hear you talking about your dad and your mom taking you to these places. Can you tell us about? You know, back then, we didn't have TV. And if you did have a TV, it wasn't in color. It was in black and white. And you only had three channels. Nowadays, you have a hundred and something, some odd. But back then, you only had three channels. So when it came for to do things, you literally, we went to the beach. Because by going to the beach, we could pick seaweed and we could pick opihi and pipipi and kupe'e. And that's what we ate. So there was a point in time when I took the kids, my kids to the beach, all we took was... Um, a bag of poi or a pot of rice. Because when you got there, it was like, okay, you guys hungry. My daughter ran into a friend of hers and they started talking about opihi because my daughter learned to shell opihi with her finger, with her thumb nail. And when they went to pick opihi for whatever party, um, she would sit and she would take the opihi out of its shell with her thumbnail. And everybody's looking at her. Uh, you don't need a spoon. And she goes, no, don't need a spoon. <laughs> I got this. Then she started using, she would use a shell, but she did not need, a, none of my kids need a spoon. After a while, they learned to take the opihi off the rock with a cut down version of a butter knife. But before that, they would take an ili ili and they knew how to just after the wave washed out, whack the side and they got the opihi. So they didn't need a butter knife. They just needed a little ili ili stone that they found on the beach when they were walking out into the water to go get. But that's how we learned. You know, there were, there were just certain things. Uh, went to Auntie Maggie's house on our way out to Hana and Uncle Alfred would have just come back from the beach and he had these little, for the life of me, I don't know what they're called, but they're these little silver fish. They were 
uh, round like Manini, but not Manini, not a baby Manini, something else. Mm. And what uh, Auntie Maggie would do is she would pat them dry, roll them in flour or mochico and deep fry it. Because the scales were extremely small, it would fry up nice and crispy. And we would have these hot little fish that were about the size, a little bit bigger than a quarter. And we would have that with rice. Oh my gosh, it sounds so good. (laughs) It was because they were fried, they were deep fried. It's crunchy. Yeah. And the inside meat is soft and juicy. And you just eat it. But that's we that's what we ate when we were little, you know, so sitting down to eat this other stuff, I was like, uh, no, not as much fun. <laughs> Mom and dad, grandma, grand aunt went to the beach. Whenever you went to the beach, there was always seaweed. You picked what you needed. You figured out so-and-so brought over fish. You're going to chop it up. You're going to... If you had little bit opihi, not too much, um, you take certain kind of limu, chop it up, mix it in with the opihi. And because crunchy, everybody thought they were having more opihi than they really were. Do you know in the park, there is uh, a sage gray plant that looks, uh, the leaves look like they're holly and it's called a veil veil. Yeah. And Hawaiians would take the leaves during times of famine. And when they were steaming the luau, they would throw in the avail veil leaves. And it gives your mind the smell, gives your mind if you're actually eating avail veil. All right. Fish, yeah. Well, ask your husband because I know he knows. Uh, I'm sure. I think Clay probably does too. They were in school together. Kinopodium. I know the genus. Kinopodium. Amazing. And then what about the Malka areas? You know, you you said you went up to um, Hosmer Grove, which it wasn't Hosmer back then with your parents. Was there someone in your family? You mentioned your auntie, you know, who was a botanist who, you know, influenced the way you viewed, you know, these very, very different places. Like I said, it, back then, no more TV. Um, or if you had TV, there were only three channels. But because there weren't these things, going to the movie, the movies were in black and white. You know, I was like, okay. So the only other fun we had was to go out and learn and collect different things for different reasons. If we had to, like Mayday, we went to collect certain plants to make um Vili or to Haku. And it's like, okay, okay, people, uh, if you put it on your head, it's called Le Po'o, not a Haku. <laughs> <laughs> well, Haku, Hilu, uh, Vili, Kui, these are all techniques to make. They are not a lay that you put on, uh, you know. Where it goes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Used to drive one of my aunts nuts. <laughs> she makes all those fancy um, haku vili, all those lays. Mm-hmm. Used to drive her nuts because people would, oh, I'm making a lay haku, and then they put it on top of their head. <laughs> and she's always going, no, that's a lay po'o, the technique you use. And she was always, it's 
haku is a technique. Vili is a technique. Where you put it is something else. Okay. Yes, Auntie. You've got to keep it straight. Yeah. And it it's hard when these people tell you da 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 da, da and you're over there going, no. My auntie told us when we were growing up. <laughs> I got a I got a question for you. I, because you're talking about gathering and I mean from from the pine sap to OPE to uh, you know lay gathering. Like I'm curious how having that connection through like gathering and using all these resources. Like that's such an intimate relationship that it's not everybody's available able to to have that right. Just like we can't have everybody running out and like harvesting everything out of the forest or you know or. Not even that they can't do that, but like for the people that don't really know or that's not part of their life, how um, have you learned to like help folks connect to these things in these places? Whenever we went to, okay, went to the beach every other Saturday. And one thing, the first thing we did before we actually did the playing and the swimming, we went and we collected certain seaweeds. PPP and Opihi, but we only collected it enough for a meal simply because we couldn't over collect. That was not right. If we picked too much, there wouldn't be anything for the next person mm -hmm. or for somebody that didn't come today. They're going to come three, four days later. You have to, I mean, it's like you can't just take for you. Yeah. Daddy had, um, when he retired and we moved down here, he started what is referred to as the kitchen garden. I remember when he got bagasse from HCNS Putunene uh, and he tilled it into the soil. The next three, five years, the daikong, the carrots, the potatoes, any tuberous fruit, vegetable, I should say, humongous. So instead of picking two or three daikong to chop up and put in pickle and put it in our salad, we only needed to get one. Okay, so right. what do we do with the other two? Easy. Went to church on Sunday. On the back table, people would put their extras and they would put, so you wanted, you needed, you picked up what you needed and that's what you went home with. Not to, yeah, you planted and you got all of this stuff. And some of this stuff, it's like, oh, excuse me, I can't eat all of this. But I have friends who live at a lower elevation, cannot grow this. You give it to them. And your friends turn around, they go fishing. They have more fish than they need big ones and you know it's like oh i can give this to so and so because the last time we went or wherever um they gave me that I, so you kind of i have and i know you guys like eat so here i mm. give you two more so, you know, so it's it's not you go someplace and you trade off or you barter so happens you had oh you know you had this and you don't or can't throw it away but you have friends or family who need so to begin with you only pick one daikong rather than three i'm going to go to certain and i know she likes so i will pick some for her and take to her or him or whoever but you share what you have 
and that goes for the fish and the opihi and the limu. And you pick limu. You don't pull it off the rock. You leave the whole fast there. It's like you, you're pulling, um, you know, sandalwood. You can use all parts of the sandalwood, including the root system. But I don't need 25 trees. I just need a branch to make. So you just take a branch. Then you have, you know, you're able to make two of something. Oh, you give one to a friend. But if you take the whole tree, you're killing the plant. And it's like, okay, you kill the plant. You don't have anything for tomorrow. No, no, you can't do that. Um, there was, I don't, and I can't remember what his name is. He was the, um, oh, one of the National Park Service higher uppies. Mm-hmm. And then he died, and he was cremated and spread at Lele'ivi. The Marilyn was mm-hmm. our superintendent then. She wanted for him and for the wife, Miley, and uh, I Kira with me. Mm-hmm. And we went, and I because sh- she wanted to know how to make a Miley lay. So we went, and I said... This is one plant. You can only take one little branch off of this one plant. You cannot just, the whole plant is beautiful, but you cannot take the whole plant. So we walked all the way in. As we walked out, I said, you walk on that side. I walk on this side. And we take a branch here. And then you walk five, ten steps down. You walk in into the under the trees and you look for another one and you pick another branch and we cut it. I said, I don't want you ripping off of the plant. And so we walked out of this one area, maybe about an acre. I told him, I don't want to, we just take one plant here, one plant there. And all we need are these, um, if we have 10 branches each, we have enough, but you don't take what you see in front of you. We're not out to make money. You're out to learn how to pick and you pick in such a way that we keep. And uh, the pruning shears we use uh, before we go into the forest, I like a clean cut. I don't want to rip um, branches off. So it has to be sharp. It also has to be clean. You think about you know, you use your pruning shears at home. That's one thing. But when you go up into the forest, you have to make sure the pruning shears you use, the blade is sharp, that the blade is clean. I don't want to take in something that may be carrying something else. You know, that that's not right. I don't want... It's like your sicky poo. Wendy Swee got married not uh, this past Saturday. Her family came. Somebody on the airplane had COVID. And so Wendy's sister was on this flight. She came early. And there were a number of people on this airplane who caught COVID. And it's like, if you are in any, you're going to travel, you make sure you yourself are well. And then you stay away from everybody else before you you travel because you don't want to give anybody. You got to be selfish with your germs. <laughs> yeah, keep 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 them in the family. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Exactly. It's like how I. Do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Be selfish with your germs. So, Nan, I mean, it 
it's so much um you know strikes me and and i'm stating the obvious here that you know just the ethic and the entire mindset that you grew up with your family i, I mean there's just so much overlap right with perhaps the the ethic of the national park service and where you ended up working can you tell us a little bit about you know because i was i was listening to your interview with alana and did not know that you had been a dispatcher in Hawaii volcanoes and that you've worked to communicate things about fire. But by the way, my colleague here, Clay, is a fire scientist. So there's there's that interesting commonality there. But then also, of course, you know, the cultural practices. I, I want to hear about your jobs. Okay, if you remember, I never, ever worked for the National Park. Okay. That's the fun part. Um, because James was the district ranger. Oh, so I did not work uh, for the national because then he would be my boss. And we know that's a no, no. That's your husband. That's my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, he was the Kipahulu district ranger. Mm. And then we went to Hawaii volcanoes and he became the Kalapana district ranger. So when we were in those different places, they needed, or back in those days, it was uh, Hawaii Natural History Association and became Hawaii Pacific Parks Association. Well, they needed somebody to work. Okay, so I went to work for them. Being a dispatcher, they had a nighttime dispatcher, but they needed somebody during the day. And it was like, okay, I can come and I, you tell me what I need to do. And I... I do da 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 da. Sandy Smith and I would leave early in the afternoon because we were the ones that cooked dinner for the people on the fire line. So we cooked we uh, cooked dinner, and some of the boys and the girls were vegetarians. For Sandy and I, very interesting because neither one of us are vegetarians or vegans both of us are carnivorous <laughs> what what year was this now 1986 to 89 and this would all be park staff like working on the fire lines or would it be mix of like local firefighters and what was it no um the police department came in on occasion wow there were sometimes depending upon who was where um, some guys, uh, were in the fire department, but most of the people were people who worked from the mainland national park firefighters. Oh, so they would come in right? and they would come down and they would be, uh, on the fire line. And sometimes, uh, these men and women last minute were told we need help because the fire is spreading. So we need help and they would go down, but they didn't have any food. So Sandy Smith and I would uh, get together and we would cook simple stuff. You're looking at some kind of stew, whatever, baked chicken, teriyaki chicken, uh, stuff like that. we would make mm. rice, poi cooked potatoes. She and I didn't know how to do French fried potatoes or potato scallop, whatever. <laughs> I, 
It, you get two local girls. It's just not always speed. Right. I bet they weren't that picky. I bet they were just happy to have a hot meal. I know, right? A hot meal, they could come down. I had a bad habit of cooking um, pumpkin pie or apple pie. Oh, man. Yeah. They definitely were not complaining. <laughs> oh, no. Because one day I made uh, rum cake. <laughs> and when you make a rum cake, you use a small bottle of rum, but mm-hmm. you have a little bit left over. And if you mix that with hot butter and sugar and you Whoa. drizzle it across the top, you're actually cooking out the alcohol. And it was like, ooh, yeah, rum cake. <laughs> so, I mean, we had cookies and home, everything was homemade. Now, now my mouth is just watering, man. Um, just like thinking about all that good food. We did chocolate chip cookies with macadamia nuts because the tour companies, the buses would come down and they would have stopped at Mount uh, Loa Macadamia Nut Farm and they would drop off and leave with us macadamia nuts and all of this stuff. And it's like smash it up bowl of popcorn with um, whatever we had, throw the macadamia nuts in there, throw the photococky in there. Yeah. That's so awesome. it, I, we had fun. And, and I mean, you know, what strikes me now is that you're so open with your culture, you know, being Hawaiian and sharing and food is so much a part of that. And then I'm thinking about all those sunrise olis that you did up at Haleakala <laughs> Summit and sharing such, I would think, and, and I, I wrote this to you the other day, that that would be, and I know nothing. I mean, so you have to start from the beginning for me and Clay, but that it would be a private, you know, sort of thing, or at least I would, I would feel that way. How did you share something like that? That is, well, can you back up and first tell us what is a sunrise only? What was your job with that? Because you were being paid to do that. And then also, how did you share that with people who'd never seen it? When at most people, even though they say, no, they're not religious in background, when something happens, most people will turn around. Oh, my God. Thank you, God. <laughs> um, and yet these are the same people who say, um, no, I'm not religious. I, I don't go to church on Sunday and I don't, but yet when something happens, there is this immediate, oh, thank you, God. And you don't say anything. Um, I was also teaching Hawaiian studies through the social studies curriculum at Kalama. And we had classes, or every other Wednesday, I should say, where Kupuna Camacho would try to get us. She goes, go say something in Hawaiian every day. Whatever. Just, and somebody is going to turn around invariably and ask you, what did you just say? And you can share that with them. When you belong to a dying race whose language is kind of sort of, you know, going out the window too. The only way in which it is going to survive is if you share it. So people want to know, what does this mean? What does that mean? And it's like, okay, you ask, you are becoming responsible for making sure 
that this culture continues. Not only that aspect or this part of it, but you're asking how come. And when you ask how come and somebody shares with you, it continues to live like dominoes. You hit that first domino. So you tell a visitor or you share with the visitor what happens. In the morning when I would do an oli, I would follow it with a prayer. E olu olu okeakua, please God. And you say something. Whether you say it in phrases, which is what Kupuna Kamacho was trying to get us to do, or whether you actually do whole sentences. At the end of my prayer, I would ask God to look over my youngest, specifically my youngest son, because he had been deployed. And people knew they would be listening. Okay, she's doing this. They didn't understand that. But a lot of them came up afterwards and asked, was that a... And I go, any conversation you have between yourself and the powers that be can be interpreted as a prayer. And then they would turn around and they say, but we heard, and that's an army. And I said, my youngest son is, um, the first time he went, he was a lieutenant um, in the United States Army. And he's in Afghanistan. And I am asking God and the powers that be to watch over him and to watch over the group of um, men that he is with, that they be safe, that they can share with each other their cultures and learn through this sharing that they're actually asking for the same thing, although they're on the other side of the world from each other. And so all these people who come to listen and then they ask you afterwards, they go home and they share what they have learned. And they re- there was a Southern Baptist minister walked in the door one day and he points at me and he goes, you people are polytheistic. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> I looked people. at him and I said, yes, we are. Wow. All of the energies in our environment we give name to. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to the library, there is a book on different kinds of rain that can be found in the Hawaiian archipelago, depending upon the season. We give each one of these energies a name. If you want to tell us that's being polytheistic, fine, we are. Think about this, a barbershop quartet. If each person in this barbershop quartet hits his note exactly correctly, you actually have five notes that you're going to get. And people who do barbershop quartet, it's like, that's right. In an orchestra, You have all of these different instruments. If each player of an instrument hits their keys exactly correctly, the music that comes out is unbelievable. If you want to say that each one of these sounds, we give it a different name. Is it a different energy? Do we want to call that energy a god or a goddess? That's up to you. Each person has a different point of view. And I am not going to tell you you are right or you are wrong. But when the points of view come together, oh, how lovely. Yeah. I must have been incredible because you, you know, kind of leading Oli at Haleakala, like you would have been in a position to really reach a, a large number of people uh, in a context where that might be, you know, the, for the tourists and things like that might be their only like real opportunity to kind of connect to this place in a, in a, 
in a really meaningful way, you know, besides kind of like the tourist luau or something lame like that. Did you ever think about it as like, God, I have this like kind of heavy responsibility? <laughs> another, another story. My youngest son, he's in the army. He was someplace in the Southeast. He was at a training session and they were sitting down to dinner one day and a woman comes up and she says, I am sorry for bothering you, but I heard you mention um, the island of Maui. She had come here to Maui. She came up to Haleakala for sunrise. And my son is like putting his hand over his eyes going, oh, no. <laughs> and I'm, you know, and the colonel is like looking at my son and knowing exactly what's going to come next. And the bottom line is... Um, she had her her reply or her statement that she had to make was that she came here to Hawaii and she was able to understand. And now when she reads the Bible for her, it's more intense. Wow. She understands it better. And she has this need to go forth and have other people understand. It's not just I heard. And okay, moving right along, I'll go to another, you know, she needs to physically participate in and that's, that's how she feels. So although I don't get it directly after a morning, whatever, um, I do know that people do leave, they think about what they have just been a part of and what it really means. Oh. And they, uh, there have been, Jess and I have done evening star programs. And in several papers, whether they be master or doctoral papers, or they be books that people have written, we find out through these papers or whatever that people have come, they've asked a question, not necessarily made statements right then and there, but have gone home to find out this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. These, I went here and these people are doing it. I got all of this and didn't know it. And they continue on their life. So it's, I do an Oli talk stories and that's hitting a domino character. They go home and they hit another domino and it just goes boop, 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 right down the road. Hey, Nan, you know, I want to tie that into sort of a historical question because I mean, so much of what we're talking about is sharing, you know, is, for lack of a better word, spiritual connection to the things that we love and the, pla and the places and the living energy, as you described. You know, when conservation efforts were underway, you know, and by that, I mean the more the institutionalized ones, right? Like when they're really hitting stride and, you know, conservationists, mostly through the university and the big agencies, they were just getting those things underway. Um, fencing, big fencing projects. Do you think that we really miss the mark in some way by not, by ignoring the cultural aspect, you know, that would have maybe been of greater appeal to Hawaiians, for example, back in those days in the 1970s? And like, this is a big question that Kalei and I have just wondered because we weren't there, but we've heard. You know, and now nowadays it feels like it's a little bit more integrated. It's actually quite a lot more integrated in terms of Hawaiian culture and, you know, biodiversity protection. But what, what do you think happened back then that, you know, has changed since maybe? 
without them understanding of this other culture, you know, it was like, oh, no, no, they they didn't know this, they didn't know this, so we don't need to do that. Over time, it becomes, they did know this. They do know this. Why didn't we incorporate it? Right. Because when we first came to, we thought, you know, whoever these, all these other people who are in the, those positions, they thought they knew because they lived in a certain manner. A lot of people turn around and go, okay, do you, you have to live in a certain manner to, in order to understand and do at that point in time? Yeah, that's what they thought. Nowadays, it's like, uh, no, <laughs> um, you don't need to live in a certain manner. You don't need to do certain. You just need to be able to share. Doesn't It doesn't matter. My second grandson. When he first came here, it was like, and they come from Nevada, okay? So in Nevada, you have these concrete brick-style homes, buildings. And he comes here to Hawaii, and everything's made of wood. There's no stone. And he's over there going, Maman, are you that poor? And I'm looking at him, what? (laughs) Are you that poor? Uh... I don't understand. And so for him, uh, rich means one thing. If right. you have da 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 For me, rich means do I use water correctly? Jeff used to help me when it rained, get the rain barrels out. This is what you do. This is what you do. And I said, okay. So what we learn along the way, our, our understanding taking water from the rain barrel to water my vegetable garden on the bottom of the rain barrel, connecting a hose. And that goes uh, into a drip system in the vegetable garden. Is that more correct or a better correct than somebody taking uh, what do you call a sprinkler and having the sprinkler wee in the air <laughs> and having the sunlight soak up all of this water and we being able to use half of the water that otherwise, and it becomes, okay, da-da-da-da. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because you can't, you don't want to like, you know, yeah. cast judgment for, for someone even if they don't know what's going on. And they're just, it's hard, right? Because if they're not really aware of kind of those those kinds of impacts or those choices they could make. And I imagine you're like incredibly patient. Again, <laughs> I just keep thinking about all the people that wandered up to Haleakala to see and be there with you. And you're like, I'm, I can't even imagine the faces and the experiences. And, the <laughs> and how patient, I mean, yes, how, how loving patient. you are, you know, with so many people from everywhere. It's, it's always incredible. In 30 years that I was up there, I only had one woman come up to me and tell me I was, what do you call it when the meow? There's a word for it. Oh, boy. I only had one woman tell me um, that I shouldn't be doing that, that it was incorrect. And I didn't wow. have to say anything. Because the people who were in her group tried to explain to her, no, that's not caterwauling. That's not caterwauling. (laughs) That's the way this culture expresses whatever they need to express. You know, I figured, okay. Man, I want to flip that around a little bit because on the the other side of things, Hawaiian culture, and and I speak 
do this as a non-Hawaiian. <laughs> um, you know, uh, speaking to other Hawaiian friends of mine. Wait a minute, before you go any further. Oh, yeah. Hawaiian is a culture. Hawaiian is a state of heart and the ao. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to get at because, because you know, Hawaiian friends of mine, artists like yourself, have said it, the culture needs to evolve, meaning like we cannot be judging ourselves. And I've heard you say this too. I, I want to hear a little more about this. Like, oh, I wasn't there 2000 years ago. I don't know if that is the way it's supposed to be now. But there is, you know, a pretty serious, right, rightfully so, seriousness and scholarship in the revival. And yet you say, and you have said, it needs to, the Hawaiian culture needs to evolve and change. Can you tell us a little bit about that, mm -hmm. more about that? You know, you look on your, and I make huge assumption, Clay has one also. Look on your left hand, <laughs> your third finger from your, your index, your middle and your third finger. I still got one. <laughs> you have some some metal or some metal wood thing going around it? <laughs> yes. What shape is it? Circle. Yeah. If you think about life, we travel in a circle. In our traveling, we come across challenges. Sometimes our challenges are such that we learn from them. We change them. We physically um, change them to the point they we adapt change. So the next time we come across this challenge, how we react or interact with it will be totally different. Mm -hmm. If we treat the challenge the same every time it comes up, have we grown? Right. Probably not. You have each time, each time the challenge comes up, you're interacting with a different, or in some cases, a person who sees life differently. So you cannot interact. How many children do you have, Clay? I have two daughters. Okay. When your wife was in delivery, did she have the same delivery style? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> As your little darlings grow up in the world, do they behave the same way? Uh no way. <laughs> no, it, it, it trips me out how different they are. I'm like, sometimes I'm not even sure if they're mine. <laughs> they're so different. From one, one at least looks like me, you know? <laughs> no. So if we do not, there are some things we will keep along life's way yeah. that we have learned that no matter what, um, if your baby falls down and hurts herself, you will pick your baby up, wipe them off, and proceed. Mm -hmm. Some things in life, you'll use the same over and over. Other things, no. you will not. You'll try something else. If we do not grow, if we do not change in what we learn, how we learn, and how we use our understanding, we're not growing. We're just staying the same. We are no better than... We're no better than the cow. <laughs> learned anything still standing around <laughs> down this pathway and chomp 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 end of conversation yeah yeah are oh you living 
going or are you just there? Yeah. Man, there's so much there to like think I about. I mean, I, you know, we thinking about the work that's getting done kind of in by the parks, by all these conservation programs. And, you know, there's a lot of places where we're probably stuck on some of these paths, you know, and just kind of like head down, charging ahead and you know, it's kind of funny to think about us as cows. You think about um, certain creatures, they they don't do, they they just are. Yeah. And if you're just going to be an R, you know, if you're just going to, <laughs> if you're not going to grow and change, um, you know, are you living your life? Or are you just there? Yeah. It just that's like, you know, the fancy word is adaptation, right? But right. <laughs> it is just living. It's like being human and responding to the <laughs> the, the things in your life, like the reality of, of the situation. Um, well, and I also think of, of Steve Perlman, you know, who ended his last interview again, like repeating the same thing, which is like life is for learning, you know, and it's so true. Right. right? And um, ah. Gosh, Nan, is there anything else you would like to add about, you know, anything at all? I, with, there's so much we've learned from you here in this interview. Uh, I can't really begin to summarize, but. The only thing I have to say, when you see Chuck this afternoon, Clay, I don't know your wife's name and your children. Whatever it is you do today, make today the first day of the rest of your life. Make it a great day and that. start by loving the ones you are with. Oh, amen. Very Thank dear. you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> very, very dear, dear words there. Well, and I'll just add here for our listeners who haven't heard Alana's interview with, with Nan here. Nan describes just, you know, telling people up there at Sunrise as they're witnessing this phenomenal event to hug one another. I mean, it's a lot longer story. But it's such a beautiful, a, such a touching and beautiful way to think about how we go about our day, as you said. You take care. Blessings be upon me. Thanks so much, Nan. Oh, But my uh, I really appreciate the time. And uh, maybe someday we can meet not on a phone call. I love that. <laughs>